I think all of us have seen that little children are natural imitators. That's how they learn. They watch their mom, their dad, their older brother and sister, watch them talk, eat, play, and they try to copy them. I mean, think about the gifts that young children get for Christmas. They get dolls. What do, what do you, little children do with dolls? They talk to them like mom and dad talk to them. They treat them like mom and dad treat them. They're copying. Why did little children get little toy cell phones? Because they see mom and dad and the older brothers and sisters on the cell phone, and they want one. I was in the store a couple of weeks ago, and I saw a set of toy tools. Children imitate. And in our verses today, all of us are commanded to imitate God. So remain seated, and let's read together our passage, Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21. Let's read this together. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I don't know if you realize it, but these verses take us full circle. 
Let me show you how. Go back to Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, where you read this in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see one word three times there in those verses. Image. God made us, human beings, in his image. That means we're a copy. We are a likeness of God. But then, as you've heard from this pulpit many, many times, that's Genesis 1. Genesis 3, that image is corrupted by Adam's rebellion and, don't forget, also by ours, by our rebellion. Now, if you listen, <clears throat> you'll hear many different voices trying to explain why the world is as it is today. But I believe that Christianity gives us the best explanation for both the good and the evil that we see. As we look at ourselves, as we look at others today, the remnant <clears throat> of God's good creation is seen in the good that people do and in the beauty of nature. We also see in ourselves and in others the evil that comes when you and I turn away from God. But God didn't leave humanity in this mess that we made. We find out, as you read the Bible, that God had actually planned, before he ever created the world, that he was going to restore what we have broken. We read in Romans 8:29, For those whom he foreknew, he there refers to God. For those people that God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, there's the word image again, in order that Jesus, his Son, because that's what Son refers to, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. But then you read in Hebrews 1 verse 3, he, again referring to Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now I had to make it small on the bottom of the screen to get it to fit. But it says Christians are being conformed to the image of Jesus. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. And so if you remember your math, remember your logic, as you put those two together, what you see is this. Christians are being conformed, restored to the image of God. In Genesis 1, we're made in God's image. In Genesis 3, that image is corrupted you put this together, God is saying, I'm going to restore what's been corrupted. Now, what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Well, in part, it means that if being in the image of God, God designed us to think like God thinks, to like what God likes, to hate what God hates, because God does hate some things. He hates evil. To value what God values to talk like God talks. And so when you look at what God values and what he likes, it is things that are true and good and noble, pure and lovely and right. And because there is brokenness in us and in others, being in the image of God also means that we 
forgive others. That's an idea of what God is doing, what He wants us to restore us to. And so in our verses that we just read, Ephesians 5, verse 1, Paul begins with a command. Be imitators of God. And that's how we've come full circle. We start in Genesis 1, in His image, it's corrupted. God's going to restore it. And here He tells us how, what He's calling us to do. And He also gives us a pattern. He says, here's how I want you to imitate. Imitate like little children do. God wants us to imitate Him like little children do their parents and others. And so what, what follows in the rest of these verses, verses 2 through 21, is a description and a commentary on what Christians should look like and what we shouldn't look like. Because remember, we're being restored from sinfulness, which is selfishness and brokenness, to become more like Jesus. And notice also in verse 8 that, it, that he says, you were darkness. This was our way of life, turning away from God, but now he's given us another way of life, way of light. So you'll see in the bulletin at the bottom a list of bullet points. This is how I've summarized what we're being told, how it is we are to imitate God in these verses. And so the first one you find in verse 2, live a life of love, and I added from later in the verses, a life of thankfulness. You and I are told to imitate God, that is to copy Him, and God loved us first. But think about this, because when you, when you hear love talked about in our culture, it's usually a feeling. When God loved us, He chose to love us. In fact, it had to be a decision on God's part because you and I are not naturally lovable, even though we really want to think we are. You want to see how lovable we are? Just compare yourself to perfection, and you'll find out we miss quite a lot. Okay, so God had to choose to love us, and he tells us to love others, and the word that's used in the New Testament is agape love. It's a giving love. It's not a feeling love. It's not a self-oriented love. It's a giving, others-oriented kind of love. And so you and I, as we read the New Testament, we find out that command is repeated over and over and over again. And just as it was a decision for God, it's a decision for us. That we're going to choose to love others. We're going to choose to try to do good to them, what God calls good. And I have to add that qualification when I talk about good. It's a good that God calls good. Because, you see, there's another kind of good that we hear today. And that is this. Oh, you want to do good to me? Well, it's really simple. You let me do whatever I want, no standards, and then celebrate whatever I've done, whatever I've chosen. God says that is not good because we're broken. Choose to do, when we love others, we choose to do good, what God says is good to others. And that kind of loving takes work. It takes effort and it costs us as we sacrifice. Now, the other thing, as I mentioned, that today, talk about love, it's all focused on the feelings. In fact, we were watching, I don't know, one of the Christmas romance movies on Netflix and here's this situation where you have these two young ladies and these two men, and just in the period of two days, they're absolutely convinced they are partners for life. 
you know, I'm going to love them forever. And one of my children, I'll leave unnamed, said, was like, how in the world can this be? Two days. Two days. And they've got this figured out. They're following their feelings. Well, when you and I choose to love others, we choose first, but often the feelings follow. But when you and I love others, we're imitating God. Second one. In the second point, I'm summarizing verses 3 and 4, where Paul says to put away all forms of selfishness and evil, and then again, borrowing from later, expose that. And he gives a list in these verses. And it's just a partial list, kind of a sample list, that includes, if you look at your verses, immorality, impurity, covetousness, which is basically wanting what others have, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Now, there are many other ways that you and I turn from God. But even if you just look at this list that Paul gives in the verses and think about how God is the opposite. God is moral. He's honest. He's pure. He's not taking. He gives constantly, constantly giving. He's clean. With his words, he doesn't tear people down. He builds people up. It's the opposite. And what you see in the Bible is that, that this list is a way of life for many people. And many Christians struggle with these and other sins. For example, pornography is a big struggle in the church. It's hidden, but it's there. There are many different areas that Christians struggle with. And what God is calling us to do is to work to keep this evil out of our lives. Not so that we'll be acceptable to God, but because we're already accepted and loved. And he calls us to imitate him, and he's pure and good. But not only are we to work to keep this evil out of our lives, we're also, as we are able, called to change our culture as well. And if you look at Western culture, it has been strongly, strongly influenced by Christianity. Now that influence is fading, and it's fading fast. But if you look back objectively at history, you can see that Western civilization has been strongly influenced by Christianity. I want to give a couple of examples that relate to the word revival. That's a church word that we use. When you think about how, what the Bible tells us, how a person becomes a Christian, we become a Christian when the God, through His Spirit, begins to work in our lives, gives us spiritual life, opens our eyes to see ourselves in reality, that we are broken and corrupted, and to see God in reality, that He is pure and good, and that we deserve God's punishment and judgment, yet He offers forgiveness. That's how anybody becomes a Christian. Well, when the Spirit of God works like that in the lives of hundreds and thousands of people in a very short period of time, we call that a revival. And I want to mention just two. One in the United States in the early 1700s, and the other in England in the early 1900s. From what I've read about this, in the United States, in many northeastern towns and cities, it was not safe for a woman to go out of her house after dark. Because immorality and filthiness and crude talking and all that kind of stuff 
was big. In England, early 1900s, in one of the mining districts, the typical pattern for the miners was they would work their shift, they'd stop by the bar on the way home, have a drink or two or three, and when they got home, life wasn't all that great. There wasn't a lot of money because it got spent at the bar. Things weren't all that good. Well, God worked in the United States. And a revival came, and in many of these cities, it became very safe for a woman to walk, be out of her house after dark. Because morality was much higher. People were more kind and caring about others. In England, a lot of the bars went out of business. They didn't have any more customers. Families had more money. They had a better home life. It's a true story. There was in one particular area, there was a police station with three or four policemen for that area. Normally, before the revival, very busy. They would have to, you know, put the drunks in jail. They'd have to go and break up the fights at the bar and deal with crimes related to all the drinking and all the other stuff going on. Well, after the revival, they were basically unemployed. They became the local on-call singing group. If you were having a birthday party, if you were having a wedding or some other special occasion, you'd call these men. You had a wonderful men's quartet. Did a great job. There was an interesting, unexpected, short slowdown at the mines. You see, they used mules to pull the coal carts. The mules had been trained for decades to start with one set of curses and stop with another set. The men stopped cursing. They had to retrain the mules. God calls us, as he works in us, to work to keep pushing this evil out of our lives and to change our culture as we're able. Then the next point from verse 6. Don't be, be deceived by empty words. What are empty words? Those are words that are contrary to, to God's word. Those are words that move you and I away from God and away from God's truth. And these empty words come in many forms. You see them in advertisements. You see them in teaching in schools and in many churches today. You see them given as popular ideas in movies and in songs and in news. We're surrounded by empty words. And because we are surrounded by these empty words, we need to be careful to be regularly reading and listening, taking in God's Word to counteract these empty words. Now here's the truth. Take it to the bank. If you don't regularly take in the Bible, take in God's Word, you cannot help but be influenced by the empty words that surround you. You cannot. I tell you that both from personal experience and from reading the Bible. We have to be feeding regularly, taking in God's Word. But also don't think this, because somebody might say, well, you know what? All this bad stuff out there, I'm going to go cold turkey. I'm going to shut down my Facebook and all of my social media. I'm going to get off the Internet. I'm not going to watch the movies. I'm not going to watch TV or listen to the radio. I'm just going to eliminate all of those bad, bad influences. Well, guess what? It won't work. You know why? Because in your heart and in my heart, you hear those empty words constantly. 
Bible calls it the flesh. It never stops. Sometimes it shouts, sometimes it whispers, but it never stops. And so we need God's Word working in us. You'll see in verse 7, he says, don't associate with people that live this way of life contrary to God's ways. He's not really saying to isolate yourself from them because he calls us to be salt and light. He calls us to be mixed in with, with other people that, that don't know God yet. I think what he has in mind here is for us to be aware of the influences on the people that influence us and how they do. And usually that's family and closest friends. But it's not just enough to be aware that this influence happens. I think another encouragement is that you and I ought to deliberately put good influences in our lives and then listen to them. In verses 8 and 9, we're told, live as children of light. Verses 3 and 4 told us what to put off. Verses 8 and 9 tell us what to put on and to how, how to know if we are living as children of light. God uses the imagery of light and dark all through the Bible. And as you see it, light is good. Light is associated with life. With light, you and I can see and we can enjoy things and we can work. Dark is associated with what's evil and with destroying things and distorting things. So how do we get this light? We get it from God through His Spirit. A person becomes a Christian when God begins a relationship with us. In fact, Christianity is first about a relationship. It's not first about a set of rules. Now, I grew up thinking, I grew up in the church, I grew up thinking that's what Christianity was. It's about being a good person, following this set of rules. Christianity is first about a relationship with God. That's why he puts his spirit in us, and, when, and it's God's spirit that provides the light for us. And he tells us in these verses how we can know if we're living in the light. If what we speak and if what we do is good and right and true, then we know that we're living in the light. And if we look at ourselves and it's, we don't see what's good and right and true, we're the ones that have moved away from God. This is connected with the next point from verse 10. Discern what is pleasing to God. So to discern, you have to look carefully at yourself and your life through the lens of God's Word. Just a little plug for the Sunday evening class. We're doing biblical principles for Christian living. That's what that class is about. Now you'll learn how. Look at your life through the lens of God's Word. Take the time to review your life. There used to be, I think from the 1700s, a saying that an unexamined life was not a life worth living that we should be looking at ourselves. But we can do better, and that's by asking God to reveal to us what he wants us to see. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever read or heard the story of Dorian Gray. I'm just going to give you a little synopsis. Dorian Gray was a man who wanted to enjoy life. He was rich. And he made a deal with the devil. He was going to be able to enjoy life to the fullest, whatever he wanted to do, and his body would not show any of the effects. All of the effects of his selfish living would be shown in a painting of him. Well, he took that painting and stuck it up in the attic. And for years and years, he indulged every desire he had. Now, in the result, he ended up hurting a lot of people. 
but he himself he enjoyed himself. And he kind of forgot about the painting till one day, decades later, he's in the attic rummaging around. He stumbles upon the painting, pulls the cover off, and he sees himself as he truly is. He's not just his body, but his soul. And it's ugly. So ugly that he dies right there. Well, you don't have to worry if you ask God to reveal your, you know, yourself <clears throat> that you're gonna, it's going to happen a Dorian Gray experience. Okay, it won't happen because he's much kinder than that. He, it, will, it can be painful when you and I see some things about ourselves. But God is using that <clears throat> to heal us and to change us. And we can know that God's intent, because he's chosen to love us and forgive us and accept us, is that he's working for our good when he does show us these things that need to change. And we have the assurance that one day we're going to be done with that selfish nature altogether. Now in verse 15, he talks about wise living. And wise living, if that's what we are doing, it results in us thinking and speaking and living in line with God's word. Then verse 16, he says, make the best use of the time. Do you realize that God did not create you and me to live independently of him? He didn't. Go back to Genesis 1, that the verses that I read earlier. Not only were we made in his image, but he also gave a command. He said, take dominion. Now, who created everything? God. So he owns it. He tells us to run it. Okay, so we're his representatives, his stewards, which means that as we live life, we're supposed to be about the business that God has for us, whether we're at work or at home or at church or at school. And sometimes preachers get kind of on a stuck on a rant. And so life isn't all just about work. Remember that God gave us another pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. God worked, and I put that in quotes, in Genesis 1, for six days, creating everything. And on day seven, he in stopped to rest, put that in, get in quotes, to enjoy his creation. God rested, even though he doesn't get tired or need sleep. So why did he do it? Have you thought about it? God is powerful. How did he, how did he create everything? He just spoke. Why didn't he just speak and create everything all at once? because he's a good father, because he wanted to give us a pattern to follow. And so he took six days to create everything. And then he rested on the seventh. And he even tells us in the command about the Sabbath that he worked six days. He wants us to work six days. He rested one day. He wants us to rest one day a week. God wants us to stop and smell the roses. He wants us to enjoy family and enjoy friends. Then in verse 17, there's something that we often get confused about. Paul says, understand what the will of God is. And we think, oh, so God has this plan, and if I'm really, really careful, I'll get it. And if I mess up a little bit, I move from plan A to plan B. And if I mess up a little more, oh, now I'm down to plan C. And if I really mess it bad, I'm down to plan F. And life's not any fun. That is a total wrong picture of the will of God. But what I'd like to do is take just a minute and turn it around and show you a way that we can see God's will for every person. And it's very simple, actually. 
God's will for every person is that we live the way he's describing in these verses. He wants us to imitate God. Then in verse 18, he says, Be filled with the Spirit. And I, you'll notice I added the words, Depend on Him. Depend on the Spirit. God puts His Spirit in every person that becomes a Christian, because God, and we become a Christian because God adopts us. And God puts His Spirit in us. His Spirit, going back to earlier verses, gives us light. God's Spirit teaches us and strengthens us and comforts us and encourages us. And when He needs to, He convicts us of where we need to change and turn back to God. God God's Spirit enables us to love others, enables us to love God and obey Him and enjoy Him. God knows that you and I cannot live the way that He calls us to live on our own. And so He commands us to trust His Spirit, to depend upon His Spirit. And then I summarize the last few verses this way. Praise God, give thanks, <clears throat> submit to one another. What happens when you and I forget God? When we don't think about God, when we don't thank God? God and His Word and His ways just fall out of our head. Or we distort God's Word. That's probably even more dangerous we distort God's Word. We're told in James that every good thing we have is a gift from God, including our very life. We always have something to thank God for. We just celebrated Christmas where God gave us the greatest gift, and that was Himself, Jesus. So when you and I remember, and just take the time to stop and think, about all the God, good things that God did. He prevented an accident here. He provided a parking spot there. He enabled a good conversation that I wasn't sure how I was going to go with somebody. Somebody did this unexpected thing, this gift to me um, of, of some way. You start thinking through the day, remembering all the different ways, and again thinking, I enjoyed a really good lunch. Well, who created that food? God did. I have life. Why? Because God gave it. And so as you think of that, you can see all the ways that God cares. And then when you put together with that, the recognition that you and I don't deserve all the good things that God has given us, it naturally moves us to thank God and to praise Him. Now, this week we're going to have New Year's Day. A lot of people are going to make resolutions. I'm sure many of them uh, are going to make a resolution to exercise. Um, my son works at a gym. He's expecting to be, to be there, this little bump in attendance for at least a month or so. Okay? People try it out. Go for a little bit. Have you ever thought of having a thankfulness muscle? Okay? What happens if you don't exercise your body? Your muscles get weak. Well, spiritually, think of an exercise of a thankfulness muscle. If you don't exercise your thankfulness muscle, what happens to it? It's weak. It doesn't work so good. So exercise your thankfulness muscle to God as you look at all that God has given you. So God calls us to imitate Him. Well, how do we do that? 
Well, first, you have to have a relationship with God. You have to know Him as your Father, spiritual Father, the, the, the God that created you, the God that has pursued you. If you don't have that relationship, if you were here and heard Jesse and Joe singing that song during offertory, and if that's where your heart is, I look at my life and I know things aren't right, but I don't know you yet, God. Say, God, I want to know you. He'll answer that request. He'll, he'll introduce himself to you so that you can see him. See, here's the thing. You and I cannot imitate God from a distance. If you try, your image of God will always be distorted. You need a personal relationship with God to be able to imitate him. Second, why do you think God put his spirit in us closer than our very breath? So that wherever we go, whatever we're doing, whoever we're with, whatever is happening, we can talk to God about it. Because he's right there, closer than our breath. Spend time every day with God, not just talking to him, but also listening. And you listen to him, find a good translation of the Bible, one that you understand, one that speaks to you. Read it regularly so that God can speak to you. And then thirdly, ask God to change you. Recognizing we all need to change. We all need ways that we are not like God. We aren't always good and pure and doing what is right. And when you and I ask that question, we're not begging God to do something he wouldn't do unless we asked. What we're doing is showing that we need God and we have a desire. Desire to imitate God and to be like him. So here we are on the last Sunday of 2019. And as you look back at 2019, if you're a Christian, wherever you look back, you can know this, where your life does not line up with, with what is good and light and right and pure and lovely and admirable, God, you know that God's forgiveness covers that. As you look back and you see where your life did line up, that's another place to thank God. Because you and I didn't work that on our own. God worked it in us. And then as you look forward to 2020, ask God to continue to build this kind of life in you, to be imitators of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us this command, you explain it, and your spirit works it in us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be imitators of you, that you'd help us to value what you value, to like what you like, to hate what you hate, to love the way you love, to give the way that you give. Lord, you work that in us. Thank you that you've called us to do this and you will answer that request. You will, you will work this in us to change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.